Welcome aboard A Banker's Journey, How Edmund J. Safra Built a Global Financial Empire. I'm Seth Goldschlager, and I'm with Daniel Gross, the author of the first biography of a man who was called the greatest banker of his generation and who became a living legend in the Sephardic Jewish diaspora, mainly because of his philanthropy. We're joined by two business leaders in their own right, Sandy Weil, former CEO and chairman of Citigroup, and Maurice Levy, chairman of the supervisory board of Publicis, the world's third largest communications group. Both knew Edmund Safra and his wife, Lily. Welcome to you all. Dan, how was it possible that Edmund J. Safra, who accomplished so much on three continents in so many ways, is still a mystery to many? As a financial journalist, I covered Sandy Weil for 30 years and watched his career and to be here with him to discuss basically what happened in the second half of the 20th century in finance, so we couldn't have a better guide to help us understand that. My wife told me when I did this project, she said, you were born to do this. And two reasons. One, I'm a financial journalist. I've been doing this for 30 years. I was a columnist for Newsweek. I covered global finance. I've been to Asia. I would go to the World Economic Forum every year. I write about business and economic history, and I'm familiar with a lot of the great figures of finance. Uh, Secondly, on my mother's side, I'm a Syrian Jew. And if you grow up in the Syrian Jewish community, there is one name that is above all else, and that is the name of the Safra family. Because going back to Aleppo and Beirut, they were this banking dynasty, and Edmund himself was the kind of protector and even the savior. I say that for the Jews of Syria and Lebanon, he was a combination of Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and Oscar Schindler rolled into one because he took care of everybody's money. But what the document showed is that over a period of decades, when people were leaving, when they were fleeing, when they needed to get out, He would help them. He had jobs for them. He would use his connections to help get people out. So those two elements of of my life, my professional life, my personal life, I think gave me a connection to this material so that when the foundation got in touch with me and said, we have his archives and we have transcripts of hundreds of interviews that had been conducted in the years after his death with people like Mr. Weil and Mr. Levy and rabbis, Rothschilds, people who knew him from grade school. It was like emptying out a jigsaw puzzle. And if you understood how the pieces connected, there was a great story to be told. Sandy Weil, you've said that Edmund Safra, and I quote you, was a remarkable leader, builder, dreamer, philanthropist, and financial services executive. You've also said that Dan Gross's book is a fantastic journey through an incredible life that you literally couldn't put down, and that our world is a much better place because of Edmund Safra. That's quite a tribute. And it's clearly a reflection of the man you knew well. Edmund shouldn't be described as any one thing. He was a unique person that really learned a lot from a very early age and read a lot and listened a lot to people. So he became very knowledgeable and he had a unique philosophy that uh, he wanted to build a bank where people could leave their money and feel that their money was going to be safe and that the people that invested as shareholders would come out and make money and be also safe. And uh, therefore, he was not really a big risk taker. When he saw risks, it led him in a different direction. You were peers. I mean, he was, I think, born probably a few years before you, but you were coming up sort of at the same time, and you had a from had an investment banking relationship, you were building Citigroup into the largest institution in the U.S. while he was building his institutions. I had a sense from reading this that like American bankers often never quite knew what to make of him, either because of 
his origins. Well, they weren't his Jewish. style. You think that was it? That they weren't Jewish? No, <laughs> but I, I think that his style was different than anybody else. I mean, he happened to be in the banking business, but he was always delivering on what he believed was a value proposition for wealthy people. And the money that he made on that, he always thought about how can he give back and make other people's lives better. Edmund J. Soffer is 15 years old. His father sends him to Milan to start trading gold in Europe on behalf of the family. One year later, he's in Amsterdam where he buys gold for $1 million from the Rothschilds. At 33 years of age, he creates the Republic National Bank of New York, which he sells in 1999, to HSBC for $10.3 billion. Yet despite this improbable success story, the man remains anything but a public figure in the public eye. Maurice Levy, you know from A to Z, the world of communications and international business. How can you explain this paradox? Edmund was... uh not very well known from the large public, but he was a figurehead in the banking system. Everyone knew him and knew about him. He was not a giant like Sandy, who created at that time the largest bank in the world, but he did it on his own way. And uh, he had a very strong position while being discreet. And discretion doesn't mean that uh, he was not communicating. He was simply communicating to the right people and for the right businesses. He didn't need to be on the front page of some uh, people magazine or whatever. This is something he was really hating. But what he was liking very much is to do his job, taking care of his uh, clients that he was not considering as clients, by the way. He was considering as friend, as part of the family system. It was something very strange. And Sandy mentioned it. He was uh, cautious. He was risk adverse. And he was taking the minimum risk a banker could take. And this was also his signature. Thank you, Maurice. I know that you, Sandy, and Dan each have personal anecdotes that go to the heart of the puzzle that a banker's journey reveals so well. Dan, let's start with you. I was meeting with one of the kind of bigger names in finance, someone whose name everybody would recognize. And I told him I was working on this book. And I said, did you ever do business or do you know Edmund Saffer? And all he said was, oh, he was very secretive, very secretive. There was a lot of often suspicion around Edmund because wherever he went, and this book is about the journey that he went on, he was an outsider. And he shows up in Europe, Mm -hmm. he's a Lebanese guy. He shows up in Brazil, he's Jewish. He shows up in New York, he's a Sephardic Jew, not an Ashkenazi Jew. In Switzerland, he lived there for 40, 50 years, never really accepted him as one of their own. So part of this was the sense of being an outsider and being worried about people's perceptions. The second almost contradiction was that his banks were publicly held. He was a private banker, mm-hmm. but I think Republic went public in maybe 72. TDB went public in 72, was sold in 82. Saffir Republic, which he created in 1988, was public until its sale in 1999. There was always a kind of suspicion about he must be doing something Mm-hmm. different or weird. And in part, you know, he had an accent. He spoke all these different languages. And I think there was a kind of reticence on his behalf because he was not from that sort of American milieu. Well, how many people would go with his brother to speak to his dead father in the cemetery to find out whether his father would bless 
is selling this company uh, to American Express. Tell me more about that. He was going to yeah, sell his right, Swiss bank, TDB. Right, right. He was going to sell it to American Express. Right. It's in the book. There are these lengthy negotiations in a classic American style yeah, with yeah, groups but, of people. But we were able to do the deal, and it started off really, really good. And um, we had a board meeting of the American Express board in Europe, which started in Switzerland, went to Paris, and then to London. Maurice, I think there was Edmund as a... Sephardic Jew, people would sometimes focus on this superstition or different practices because they were very different from Ashkenazi. Did you see that kind of in, in your life of people's either assessment of him or maybe not fully understanding him as a human? I'm not sure that being Sephardic or Ashkenazi make a difference in the way you behave, particularly when you are in the U.S., you are on the sideline when you are Sephardic because uh, you are not coming from the big crowd of uh, the Jews who are coming from Poland or Russia or Ukraine or those countries. I will tell you two small anecdotes, if I may, regarding uh, Edmond. One was a friend of mine who was uh, making a deal on real estate and he sent his son to an operation here in the U.S., and he went to the bank, and um, the bank started to put a lot of questions to the banker, and um, the father just withdrew from the bank. It was Edmund's bank. He withdrew all his account. He said, okay, finished. Edmund invited him for lunch, and um, he said, um, I owe you an apology. My employee, and it was very high-ranked employee, put some indiscreet question. He should have known your name, but um, you are from Geneva. You are not in the U.S. He doesn't know. And I'm not asking for the business to come back. I'm not asking for anything. I just want to apologize. And that was it. The second story, I'm involved. So it's something which I'm a little bit uh, part of um, the story. After the death of uh, the founder of Publicis, Marcel Boussin Blanchet, we had to make a restructuring of uh, the capital because one of the daughters decided to sell. And uh, it was in a private holding company, so nobody could really buy. It was a bit complicated story. And um, I went to the people in the rank where they called me. Say, okay, you are interested. Here is the deal and this is what you can do. And um, everything went well, and they had the number of people who had to deal. And uh, one of those investors, and I will not say the name because it's a name well known, had a partner who was really a pain. I will not say where, but a real pain. And um, I called him, and they said, listen, we are friends. I prefer your friendship to your money, so out. And... Um, I went to the four other partners to say, okay, the share of X is now available. Do you want to have a part of it? And we were Tuesday and we had to sign on Thursday. I said, we have to go back to our committee. I said, forget it. If you have to go back to our committee, we will not be ready. We stay as we are. I gave a call to Edmond to explain the situation. He said, how much? I gave the amount. He said, okay. I said, do you want to see something? No, but you don't want to see the papers? No, you are talking about people who are well-known. They have done their due deal. 
I said, yes. They are signing the same paper as I will be signing. Yes. Okay. My team will be here with the check and I don't need to see anything. And this is part of how he was dealing. He was not dealing through risk committees, but most of the time, a word is a word. Shaking hand is shaking hand, looking at the people in the eyes and saying, okay, I'm doing it. And that is Edmond. People who knew Edmund Safra say that his actions reflected a sense of human justice in both his personal and business lives. His philanthropy was one way to act on that belief, which he inherited from his father, his mother, and many of his kin before him. At the time of his passing, he left half of his fortune to the Edmund J. Safra Foundation, an institution which today continues to support education, science and medicine, humanitarian and religious causes, and culture in over 40 countries. He sent a powerful message to any aspiring leader, something which Sandy Weil points out quite clearly. Well, if somebody wants to be a leader in a company and wants that company to have a good reputation, then the leader should be leading the company in what it should be doing to make the world around them a better place and create things that people that work in the company can also do. I mean, part of a company's job is to contribute their money, but thoughtfully. And if a lot of most companies, the CEO doesn't get involved at all, and they leave it to the human resources department, and that would be very bad. Edmund did everything himself. And I think that is so important, that message that he gave and others give about, uh, you know, making the world a better place. And companies are going to have to be much more involved or that kind of institution will not end up existing. I think the United States has been a great example of philanthropy and corporate philanthropy and, and individual philanthropy. We had entrepreneurs that make unbelievable amounts of money, and most of them get really involved in how they give their money away. They're not just making a gift, but the brains that help them make the money they made, they also use those same brains to help institutions think better about how they can spend the money that they're giving them, which I think is a very, very important I think thing. one of the most interesting facets of the book and the story is his approach to what we would call philanthropy or what he would have called sadaka, which came naturally to him. You know, sometimes in our world, people will spend X number of years making as much money as they can. And then at the end of their career, say, okay, now I'm going to give it away. Or maybe at the end of their life, I'll leave it to Mr. Weil, you were too late. But you didn't wait. You endowed the Cornell Medical School while you were still in the middle of your career. You didn't wait till much later. I think that if you were successful and you used those same abilities to uh, not just give money, but you're giving money and your brains and your experience to make that institution better. I think that's very important. In Beirut and Aleppo, there was like a formal community council for the Jewish community, and the Safras were often the president of it. So that meant you had to step up. And he knew from time he was a kid, that it was his duty. There's a story. His father sent him to Europe at the age of 15 to start trading and set up operations for the family. And he finds himself in Paris when he's 16 or 17, and he needs some papers so that he could live there. And some people at the Alliance, which is this educational mm -hmm. school institution, they helped him get the papers he needed. And so he says to them, okay, what can I do for you? What do you need? And they say, well, we need some refrigeration equipment. And he said, okay, I'll give it to you. Meanwhile, he's 16. They thought he was joking. They had to call Beirut to see if this guy was for real. He always saw a success from the beginning, 
between succeeding in business and helping your community, your family. And it was done on an individual basis. And in the documents, there are just thousands of checks he's writing to this synagogue for prayer books here, to someone who needed surgery. And it ultimately evolved into having a, a foundation you know, in his lifetime. So finance and banking have a particular purpose in Edmund J. Soffer's eyes. His vision involves trust, respect, responsibility, and a sense of security. It's something different than what the world of finance means to many today. I think a very good way to think is that he created an institution where people respected what the leader was doing. A person that when a leader is very philanthropic and in a way that's helpful to the business, people are proud to come to work. When the leader is not involved in anything except the company, that's a different kind of business and that attracts a different kind of person. The bank was a boutique. Right. Uh, and he cannot change the world of finance with a boutique. Right. He can serve better, differently, etc. But I would like to come back to what you were saying about this uh, philanthropy as uh, when he was 16, 17, etc., the way it was. I'm not from Syria. My family is uh, from uh, Spain, went to Salonika, back to Spain, Morocco during the war, blah, blah. And um, I know a little bit about those Jews who are conservative, believers, have a faith, and um, they believe that they have to do good. And um, I have been raised uh, in a family where my grandfather had at the entrance of his house a plate with a lot of pesetas. And the beggars had to come and serve themselves. And he was saying, nobody should see them. They take what they need for the Shabbat or for whatever, and uh, we should not watch them when they are taking it. They said to him, but somebody can take the whole thing. Fine, he should, if he needs. And uh, when you are raised in this environment, you are raised to share already when uh, I had my duro to give something. As a child, I was getting my duro, which is the large, five pesetas coin, and I was sharing immediately that with some other kids. And this is an education. So it's part of the education. You have the synagogue, you have the poor people, you have the hospital, you have the education. And this was not fake. It was part of the collective. It's tzedakah. You mentioned tzedakah. This is how they are thinking. It's much later on that he created the foundation and acted as the people who are having a foundation and doing good with uh, means which are significant. One of the stories, uh, it was in New York. He went out of the bank and there was someone, a beggar. It was very cold and uh, he gave him a note. But it was so cold that he took his coat out and gave it to him. And this is the kind of story that you will see several times right. when it comes to Edmond Safra's life, where he has been very, very generous to help poor people, almost individually. You're in the communications business, and people pay communications and public relations firms a lot of money to help them come up with, you know, what is our company's purpose? What do we stand for? They want to communicate their brand. They want to communicate to employees. Edmund struck me as someone 
you would not see a purpose or a mission statement or any of that kind of language from the bank, but he knew exactly what his purpose and his mission was without ever even having to talk about it. Yes, he was simply a man of ethics and he was following his ethics, Mm -hmm. period. And uh, very often when you see the work that we are doing for a large corporation, at the beginning of the story, there is a CEO, there is a founder who has some very simple ideas of how to run the business. So he was a man of ethics. I would say, and that was that simple. It was not about a purpose. It was not about doing good. It was simply being himself. And by the way, the bank was bearing his name. Mm-hmm. So it is helping. When you, you have your name, you stand by your values and you promote the name and you are embodying the bank or the company. And that is what Edmond was doing. The passing of Edmond Safra left his wife Lily as chair of the foundation. She became the guardian of his legacy. That was natural for her. Why? Simply because she shared with her husband the same commitment to caring for the less fortunate. Maurice Levy recalls the devotion of Lily Safra in making sure that Edmund's spirit remains alive in projects supported by the foundation. She was cherishing Edmund, and uh, it was uh, a position where she was uh, protecting and uh, doing everything that uh, Edmund was doing, and she was thinking, Okay, if I'm doing this, it is right with uh, what Edmond wanted to do. And at the same time, she was a little bit nervous to do not be seen as uh, owning what Edmond was doing. So it was uh, a thin line between, okay, I need to perpetuate what Edmond was doing and his legacy. And at the same time, I don't want that the people think that I'm taking ownership of what Edmond has done and his legacy. It's only at the end, and uh, I must say that I have insisted several times, I said, there are operations that you are initiating, and it should be Lily and Edmond Safra. It should not be only Edmond, because you have your fingerprint, you have done a lot of things, you are committed Mm -hmm. to Edmond's legacy, and the way you are doing is so dead honest that you should put your name on it. And she finally accepted to do it in some occasion. But she was very firm and she was respecting Edmund's will very religiously. It is certainly difficult to describe Edmund J. Safra in a few words. And I would like to ask each of you, Daniel Gross, Maurice Levy, and Sandy Weil, what comes most to mind? I would say, almost sum it up in one word, it's dignity. That he felt and this was on a human level and a personal level, and why he ran his banks the way he did and why he did philanthropy the way he did, was that if you think about what was going on in the 20th century, to be a Jewish person was to suffer displacement. Whether you're in Lebanon, Syria, Morocco, Egypt, persecution in many instances, trying to build a new life somewhere. And dignity was being secure in your person so that no one would come and harm you. It was being secure in your possessions. I mean, you had some assets to live on and his banks were there to protect those people's assets. And Dignity was having a place where it's secure to gather with other people and to pray and be part of a community. And so much of his philanthropy, and not just philanthropy, but like organizing, and anytime a group of 
Jews from Syria or Lebanon was organizing a synagogue in Panama or a community center in Brazil, he was there to provide the funds. I would say that he was not a man of the 20th century. He was acting in the 20th century with the mind and the spirit of the 90th century. That is how I have always seen Edmond. And if there is something that is his legacy, is that he has been always true to his ethics and to his values. And if there is something that can lead to great business, is to be true to the values and to the ethic of the company. Said beautifully. I agree. I agree. That's, that was Edmund. Period. It's certainly hard to follow these tributes, dignity, ethics, values, but they were clearly visible to those who knew Edmund Safra as he traveled along his remarkable banker's journey. Thank you, Dan Gross, for so vividly tracing his path in your biography of Edmund Safra. Thank you also for being with us, Dan, Sandy Weil, and Maurice Levy. And thank you, listeners, for accompanying us on the voyage.